Now, in this series, we've been saying that joy befits Christian life. Writer Shelton Von Aachen understood this very well. Here's how he put it. The best argument for Christianity is Christians, their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christians is also Christians, when they are somber and joyless, when we are self-righteous and smug and complacent consecration, when we are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. These past few weeks in the series on joy, we've been exploring the affective dimension of joy. Uh, that just means that joy is a feeling. It's something that grasps us. Today, we're going to be coming at it from a slightly different angle. We're going to grapple with what Yale theologian Miroslav Volf calls the agential aspect of joy. Uh, for those who are not academic types, that's just a fancy way of saying that joy is not a feeling detached from action. It's not a feeling detached from action. In other words, joy is something that we can and should cultivate. Our joy is shaped, it's enhanced by what we do. Simply put, we have a hand in making joy. This is a theme that teases out of Isaiah chapter 61. In this chapter, you might say, we encounter something like a manifesto for making joy. It's a guidebook, so if you want more joy, pay attention. And the gist of it is this. God summons us to participate in his righteousness and in his justice, and there is joy to be found therein. Julia Child said that there is joy in cooking. God says there's joy in doing righteousness and justice. In order to appreciate this, we need to attend to at least four things, four things I want to draw your attention to. Number one, the person. Number two, the precedent. Number three, the promise. And number four, the power. The person, the precedent, the promise, and the power. Good alliteration, I know. You know I'm a fan of that. The person. Start with the first three verses. This is what Isaiah says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. What poetic language. Isaiah is telling us that God has something in mind, and this thing involves divine favor as well as divine vengeance. Favor is the focus of chapter 61. Vengeance is in the chapters that follow. And the favor that is talked about here is going to be extended through a mysterious but a very good person. That's the unnamed voice that is speaking in this passage. You'll notice there's no introduction. We need to pay attention to this guy. In fact, when you see what he's up to, you can't not pay attention. When it comes to the business of this mysterious, enigmatic persona, there are several things I want to pinpoint. First off, he's not just a good-hearted fellow. He is anointed by God's Spirit, verse 1. There is authorization and empowerment from heaven on this person. That anointing is the gas in his car. Brum, brum. Second, in terms of his activities, they can be classified as works of justice and righteousness. Okay, that's Old Testament speak for transformational activity. This guy is not just a candy striper. He's not giving out Hallmark cards or putting on Band-Aids. He is changing things decisively, deeply. He finds a desert. He turns it into an oasis. He's a heart surgeon, not a plastic surgeon. 
And then you know, this is, again, in verse 3, very clear. The word instead appears three times in verse 3. Instead of this, there will be that. Instead of this, there will be that. That is the language in Hebrew of radical transformation. In other words, messes aren't just being cleaned up. They're being undone. They're being undone. Now, what's this transformational activity entail, and who benefits from it? That's a good question to ask. In verse 1, we're told the poor. Old Testament scholar Alec Matir says that this Hebrew phrasing refers to, quote, the downtrodden, the disadvantaged, the afflicted, anyone held back from progress and from amelioration by either people or circumstances. And then there's the brokenhearted. This little word covers any and every human breakdown, emotional collapse, stress, grief over our frailties, grief over our moral deficiencies. The anointed guy enters into all of this, all of this mess to bind it up. He brings personal attention. He brings soothing, but he also brings more. He brings healing, and he brings restoration. At the end of verse 1, we read about liberty for captives. There are a lot of things that take us captive in this world. In fact, there are a lot of invisible prisons in this room right now, things that bind us. The worker in these verses has the keys to those prisons. Everything that's happening here expresses what can be called the justice and righteousness of God, this little combo of words is sprinkled throughout the book of Isaiah, and they both appear in our text. And what do they mean? In the Old Testament, justice and righteousness are very relational concepts. In the first instance, they're not about rule enforcement or impeccable rule keeping. This isn't about being self-righteous in that smug and awful sense, right? A just and righteous person is someone who is oriented to God, someone who is concerned with goodness and harmony that God himself wants to be all over the world. We're talking about shalom. You know that word? Shalom. That's the Hebrew word that we translate as peace, but it does not just mean a ceasefire or the absence of war or even the absence of stress inside of us. Shalom means so much more. You might say that it refers to an incredibly rich state of affairs in which every single need gets met out of abundance, in which every gift is offered with delight. Shalom is about thriving in every sense of the word, psychologically, emotionally, ecologically, relationally, professionally. That's shalom. Shalom is what the person in these three verses is unfolding, and Lord knows our world needs it. The Bible tells us, you see, that in the beginning, when it all started, God wove creation into existence like a beautiful tapestry. But then that tapestry got ripped and frayed by us. We read about that on the news every day. Shalom is about reweaving that tapestry. That's God's justice and righteousness in action. That's what Isaiah sees. Do you see it? Yeah, we're not simply supposed to see it. We're not simply supposed to be spectators. We're called to take part, which is why the person in verses 1, 2, and 3 sets a precedent, a precedent for all people to follow. Look with me at verses 4 through 6 now. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. You shall be called priests of the Lord. You shall all speak as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. And you'll notice, especially you grammar sharks, that the pronouns have switched here. We've moved from first-person singular to third-person plural. Me has become they. Me has become they. In other words, the person in the first few verses is not a one-man band. He is the 
conductor of an orchestra. He is the leader of a parade. God desires to effect a deep and expansive social newness, building up ancient ruins, raising up former devastations. That involves a lot of people, community, everybody. That's what's being said here. Verse 6 spells it out quite clearly. God's people are invited to be, all of us are invited to be priests. Okay, a priest is, in, in this sense, is not someone who wears a collar up front like me right now. Okay, put that definition on hold. Let me give you, let me tell you what the Bible means by it. The Old Testament concept of priesting is linked with the care and stewardship of creation and everybody in it. If I were to make an analogy, priestly work is about cultivating the world so that things bloom and grow and people. You take a tangled mess and you turn it into a stunning and fruitful garden. That's what priesting is about. To be one of God's people is to own that vision, to participate, to follow the precedent of the servant in verses 1, 2, and 3. One commentator puts it this way. He says, these verses clearly have an application for the church. They apply to us. They apply to us. Now, before, saying, before moving on from this, let me treat a point of potential confusion. On the surface, if you look at verse 5, if you've got a Bible, I would, by the way, encourage you to keep that open. If you've got a Bible, look at verse 5, and that verse can stir up some misgivings. When I was studying this passage last week, I was, I was actually a little bit put off by it myself. It, it seems to anticipate a new social order where there are still going to be some second-class citizens. It's just that God's people are now at the top of the pyramid, and the foreigners, maybe the people who formerly oppressed them, they're at the bottom. They're the underclass. They're the laborers. Is this, is this a vision of an imperialistic role reversal? Is that what Isaiah is saying? Is that what he's offering? To put it bluntly, that is not what's being conveyed here. God is not after a reversal. He is intent on renewal. There is no resentment in these verses. This is not about turning Downton Abbey upside down. Right? This is not an inversion. It is a conversion. A conversion of the world as we humans tend to set it up. To quote Old Testament scholar Matir once again, he says this, he says, The imagery in verse 5 does not anticipate a new slave state, but rather a situation of glad cooperation. Glad cooperation. A situation where all the petty distinctions that divide humans tend to erode. I mean, look again, it says that the stranger will tend the flocks. That's actually an oxymoron in the context of this passage because in Hebrew, the, the language of standing, standing watch over the flocks, that word actually, it, it denotes responsibility and oversight and trust. That is not something a stranger would do. That is not something a stranger would be vested with. It is something a former stranger would do, someone who is now a friend. You see, from God's point of view, the only future worth building involves a full expression of the dignity and thriving for everyone. That's shalom, reweaving the ripped fabric of creation. Speaking of shalom and this precedent that is calling us right now, there's a little bit of a bone I want to pick with regards to the vision as Isaiah lays it out. Here's the question. Is the transformation in these verses primarily spiritual or material in its orientation? Is it primarily spiritual or material in its orientation? There's been a lot of confusion and even disagreement about this. On the one hand... Some of you may know folks like this. There are Christians who have spiritualized the activity in Isaiah 61. The good news in these verses is, you know, the news about liberty and opening prisons that is basically seen as salvation from sin. It's a spiritual solution to a spiritual problem. On the other hand, there are Christians who politicize these verses. They understand it purely in socioeconomic terms. 
That's what you see in certain streams of what's called liberation theology. Well, which is it? Is the transformational work spiritual or material in orientation? Yes. Yes to both. Yes to both. You see, following John Stott, I would suggest that each of these two options is unbalanced without the other, and neither on its own does justice to what the text is saying. Let me make the case. I don't want to just declare that. I want to demonstrate it for you. First, in verses 1c, there's a phrase. It says, opening the prisons of those who are bound. Now, on the surface, that seems pretty material in its orientation, right? Opening a prison gate, but actually something spiritual is in mind. You see, the Hebrew there literally means opening the eyes of those who are blind. And that is Old Testament idiom for spiritual darkness being removed. In other words, this is about enabling people to see the truth about God, who he is, and why we all need him. And that is essential in any rehabilitation and renewal, according to the Bible. By the way, I should note that the world's poor readily affirm this insight. In a major study, uh, they decided to ask 60,000 people living in poverty to define poverty. And yes, they did say poverty was material in some sense. Right? They talked about the material aspects of poverty, but more often, they defined poverty in terms of internal and spiritual factors, things like shame and powerlessness, fear and hopelessness, voicelessness, inferiority. That's a form of poverty that needs relief. On the other hand, however, the coloring of these verses is not just spiritual. Look at verse 2a, very important. It says, The Spirit of the Lord has come upon me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the Hebrew here, that's a resting language. Just like the language of liberty for captives back in verse 1, this, this, these words look back to Leviticus chapter 25. I'm sure you all know what's in Leviticus 25, but in case you haven't read it recently in your morning devotions, let me remind you of what Leviticus chapter 25 says. Beautiful chapter, in fact, one of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament. Leviticus 25 talks about a major event in the history of Israel called the Jubilee. The Jubilee. What was the Jubilee? Well, it was something that happened about every 50 years, and it was a year-long event when your debts got canceled. If you lost your property, if your property had been forfeited, it came back to you. Maybe you lost it because of uh, someone died and you couldn't afford to keep it, maybe mismanagement, maybe a famine. Whatever the reason, it came back to you, the historical owner. And then manumission or freedom was granted to people who had been put into indentured servitude or slavery to pay off debts. That was the jubilee. It was about pressing reset on the social order once per generation. It was about preventing poverty from being normalized, systemic disadvantage, the entrenchment of exploitation. Jubilee was about erasing all of that. It was a time of great grace. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like today? There would be some people who would not like it at all and others who would like it a lot. A time of great grace. In fact, the word jubilee literally means ram's horn because it was so exciting they went out and blew a big ram's horn. Yay! Right? That's what it meant. Wouldn't you do the same? Isaiah 61 smacks us in the face with the Bible's, Isaiah 61, the, the prior teaching about the Jubilee is all over this passage, which makes it clear that there is a material orientation to the redemption in this vision, material, but it's also spiritual. They're both there. I think the Lausanne Statement from 1989, which was written by Christians from all over the world, encapsulate these two themes very well. Let me read it. Let me read it to you. It says this, The spiritually poor who humble themselves before God receive by, by faith the free gift of salvation. 
and the materially poor and powerless find additionally in the kingdom of God new dignity as God's children and the love of brothers and sisters who will struggle with them for their liberation from anything which demeans or oppresses. How about that? Isaiah 61 is talking about a massive reordering of human life and community that is the business of divine righteousness and justice, and it has a spiritual and a material dimension. It carries both of them, but it also carries a promise. It also carries a promise. That's point number three, for those of you who like to keep track. What about this promise? Let me put it in pirate speak. There be joy in these here waters. Arr. Right? Look at verse 10a. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exalt, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's covered me in a robe of righteousness. And also, verse 11, the same thing. It says, God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up. Praise to sprout up before all the nations. Now, with these statements, we're back to the first person. I will greatly rejoice. That means that the anointed man in verses 1, 2, and 3 is back at the microphone, and what he says is happy. It's jubilant. It's ecstatic. In fact, the Hebrew in verse 10 that's translated rejoice literally says joy, joy. That's how Hebrew is emphasized. That's how Hebrew language, joy, joy. It's giddy. It's happy. In these words, there's a little secret for us. Here it is. Doing shalom makes joy. Doing shalom makes joy. Old Testament specialist Walter Moberly explains it like this. He says, for Isaiah, inner exaltation, inner gladness, is consistently construed in terms of faithfulness to God's will and the rejection of self-aggrandizement. That's how you find joy. You do that. In other words, when we participate in the work of the servant in verses 1, 2, and 3, the work of shalom, we can expect to taste joy. If we do his work, we share his joy. That is the logic here. This whole setup reminds me of a guy called Slomo who lives in San Diego. I met him about five years ago, and if you go down there and go to the beach, you will probably still meet him. Uh, his real name is John Kitchen, MD. He is a neurologist, but he does not practice medicine anymore. He gave it up to roller skate. I'm being serious. He gave it up to roller skate. Why on earth did he do that? That's all he does now is he roller skates. It's called slow-mo. That's the name of his style of skating. And this is what he says. He says, because this skating elevates me into a realm of pure subjectivity and connectedness, and it infuses my life with happiness. So he found this thing that doing this thing makes him happy, and that's all he does. He must have saved some money, of course, before he retired. But um, that's an analogy, right? But it hits the nail on the head. God is telling us that the activity of shalom generates joy. When we do shalom, we make joy. Now, let's dwell a little bit longer on this link between doing shalom and tasting joy. A couple things more I want to highlight. A, you need to see that in this vision, Isaiah is yanking us, he's yanking all of us, me, you, everybody, into a non-conformist posture when it comes to the pursuit of joy. In our culture right now, this goes without saying, the language of joy is embattled language because people possess sometimes very different ideas about how to get joy. The default, you might say, is that joy or happiness is essentially to be found in pursuing pleasure. And by that, I mean instant gratification that leads to surges of dopamine. Right? Pleasure from decadent foods, pleasure from endless entertainment, pleasure from creaturely comfort, sex, you name it, sugar, diamonds, vacations, pleasure. Most of us buy into that. Even if we try to resist it, we still buy into it. Most of us are conformists, but not Isaiah. The joy that Isaiah depicts is not sourced in consumerism or endless self-comfort or continually feathering our own nests. 
Isaiah's calling us to something higher, something more noble, a more fulsome experience of joy. Hang on to your seats. The joy that Isaiah has in sight is marked by a certain paradox. It comes not by grasping, but by offering. Not by gobbling up the lollipop, but by sharing it. Not by being served, but by serving. Interesting, when I was re- uh, preparing for the sermon, I discovered that our early Christian forebears really understood this well, better than we do, I think. They were on the very same page as Isaiah when it comes to the pursuit of joy, which is why when they spoke of human happiness, they delineated four levels of it. Four levels of it. Level one was they called animal happiness. That's about satisfying our carnal appetites. You're hungry and you're tired. You walk into a place and there's a nice warm meal. You sit and eat and there's pleasure. That's happiness level one. Happiness level two, that's tied to achievement, personal achievement and advancement. It's about self-betterment, education, and the satisfaction that we find therein. We're moving up in the world. That's happiness level two. Levels three and four, however, call us to something more. Happiness level three is connected with seeking the good of others. It's a joy that comes from celebrating and serving others in their interest. And happiness level four, that's communion with God, just enjoying God for who he is. Now, against that backdrop, I don't think it's a stretch to say that in our cultural ecosystem, the pursuit of joy often gets stuck at level one and level two. And levels one and levels two have mostly to do with you and me, with our needs, with our comforts. Now, to be sure, levels one and two have their place. They feel good for a while, and they meet real needs. But if you park there, you're getting shortchanged. And eventually, when the music stops, you're going to be left without a chair. Some of you might think God is a killjoy, but I want you to see through all of this that nothing further from the truth could be. That was a strange way to put that. God invented joy. God invented joy, and if anything, if, if anything, God only wants to stifle joy that is comparatively cheap and expiring because he has a greater joy for us, something that's more precious and more breathtaking, and he's not going to let us settle for less. Let me say another thing about this path to joy that God is rolling out through these beautiful poetic words from Isaiah. I want to expand a little bit more on what shalom looks like and because you know, doing shalom is connected to making joy, so we need to understand that. So let me quote preacher and author John Ortberg here. I think he sums it up so well. That's what he says. He says, in shalom, all marriages would be strong. Every single child would be secure and know that they're loved. Every baby would be conceived by parents who deeply love and are permanently committed to each other. And any baby conceived would be allowed to be born and would then go on to live a rich and a full and a treasured life by those around them. In Shalom, all nations would treasure the differences between ethnic groups. When there are people who make laws and enforce laws and keep laws, they would be knit together in love. In the workplace, colleagues would rejoice in the promotion of their other colleagues. Reality shows would feature real wives and real husbands who spur each other on to greater levels of faithfulness to one another, greater levels of fidelity, sobriety, devotion, and purity. The Bachelor would be a documentary about the life of Jesus. The internet would be filled with stories of moral beauty and excellence of character. People would read those stories. They would post them on Facebook. They would call each other at the end of the day and say, you must read this. Friends, according to God, this is the way things were meant to happen. Doing shalom is nothing more than leaning into that reality, spending ourselves in support of it. 
this is precisely how God created us and the whole world to be, and that is why joy burgeons out of doing shalom. You see, shalom is just another name for people living into their creative purpose, and when you do that, you will purr like a happy cat. That's for all the animal lovers. In this reality, gladness is as abundant as rain is to the city of Vancouver. So let's devote ourselves to making shalom, which is just the equivalent of saying, let's be joy junkies. Let's be joy junkies. That's the promise. Will you influence our city with it? Will you test that promise in your own life? Will you? I do so enjoy reading the bus stop adverts around Vancouver. I, uh, I like to kind of to look at them, sometimes take pictures and, you know, exegete the, the underlying message. I have too much free time. They're, those ads are, are so good at reminding me to take care of myself. And one of them says, indulge. Buy yourself a more expensive watch, Roger, which is a bad idea because I always break my watches. Another one says, treat yourself. Maybe a day at the spa to recover from all that yoga. <laughs> Another sign I saw says, dine out. You deserve a break from the toil of cooking in your first world kitchen. Now those adverts, of course, purport to peddle happiness, but I know better now because Isaiah has showed me that happiness that they're selling, that's low-level happiness. If those, ad, if those companies, if those ads really want to offer joy, they need to be rewritten. Maybe they'd sound like this, indulge. Give more money away to the poor, to the refugee council than you might normally do, splurge. Treat yourself. Treat yourself to the joy of treating somebody else to the privilege of investing in another human, of taking risk for their benefit. That's a real treat. Dine out. Dine out by taking a meal to your sick or your pregnant or your elderly neighbor and linger and actually talk to them for a while. And don't buy the meat at no frills. Buy it where you get your own meat. That was for me. The needs of this world are endless. They constantly clamor for our attention. And I think it's absolutely amazing that God has set things up so that we can make joy by lending a hand. Someone is waiting right now. St. Francis of Assisi sums it up well when he says, it is in giving that one receives, it is in self-forgetting that one finds. Folks, we will find joy wherever shalom is needed because we will find God wherever shalom is needed. This statement leads to that final point, the power the power to follow the example of the servant here in Isaiah 61. And if you're like me, you find everything Isaiah is saying here very compelling, very attractive. Shalom is a beautiful thought, and everybody wants more joy. Is anybody here who feels like their, their life is just too full of joy? We need to turn it down. Nobody feels like that. But implementing this can prove difficult. As C.S. Lewis once quipped, no person knows how bad they are till they've tried very hard to be good. I think he wrote that about me. In my case, all too often, I do not do what I want to do, and therefore my joy gets muted. I'm deprived of joy. I'm robbed of it. And who are the burglars? One of them's called Mr. Fear. Another one's called Dr. Anxiety. A third one's called Miss Indifference. And a fourth, he's really nasty, is Sir Self-Centeredness. Those things are all within me. And when their influence rages, I create the need for shalom more than shalom itself. And joy withers. You see, it comes down to this. Of myself, my vision, my energy, my resolve to consistently follow the example of these verses is pretty limited. 
And for that very reason, the joy that shines through here is often faint and fleeting in my existence, unless I am empowered by a power that comes from God himself. Now, how do we get that power? The answer is actually right here in the text. Isaiah lays it out quite squarely, in fact. On a first reading, as we said way back at the beginning, the guy who instigates all of this glorious and joyful activity of shalom in verses 1, 2, and 3, he's a mystery man. He does not announce himself. But eventually, Zorro's mask comes off. That's what Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, tells us. Luke 4 contains a restatement of Isaiah 61. And how does it come? It comes on the lips of Jesus. It comes from the mouth of Jesus, the Christ. Christ is not his last name. That's a word that just means anointed one. And here's the thing. After Jesus repeats Isaiah 61, he adds something. That's Luke chapter 4, verse 21. Jesus said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. That is an eye-popping claim. I mean, basically, if you want to know who Isaiah was writing about, if you want, he was writing about me. I am the shalom bringer. That's what Jesus is saying. And what we're discovering here, this is of colossal consequence. Isaiah is pointing us to power. Let me explain. Let me connect the dots for you. You see, Jesus is the one that Isaiah anticipated, the shalom maker coming to the world. And because he is that person, he is the one who carries the Spirit of God, the one who is anointed by the Spirit of God. That is his permanent anointing. Isaiah 61, verse 1. And that is why every moment of Jesus' life added beauty and restoration to our world. We need that power. We need that power so that we can carry profound love and hope and courage and fortitude and resolve for the work of shalom in this world because that work will meet resistance. We will make enemies. That's why Jesus died. We need that power so that we can taste the joy that comes through shalom. And on this front, there's good news. Look at verse 10 again. It's hidden, it's hidden right there in plain sight. This is Christ speaking about his wedding. In the Bible, some of you know this, right? Marriage is one of the seminal images for God's relationship with his people. It comes to fruition in Jesus, who calls himself the great cosmic bridegroom, and he calls the church his bride. That's us. The church is us. That's, the church is anyone and everyone who says, Jesus, I want you to be all over my life. I don't want any part of my life, no matter how big, no matter how small, to be cut off or compartmentalized from you. I want your presence to be constant, and I want it to be intimate. That's marriage. And when you marry someone, those of you who are married know this, what they have becomes yours. Who they are imprints you. What they love stamps your own priorities. That's how it is, and that means that when we allow Christ to embrace us and we, when we embrace him in return, everything that he has becomes ours. That's what the Bible says over and over again in the New Testament. What does he have? He has the Spirit of God. He has that anointing, that power. We get that. Just like Christ came into the world, his Spirit now comes into us to offer that very same thing. That's John chapter 14. That is the gas in our tanks. That is what imparts to us the energy, the vision, and the resolve to throw ourselves continually over all of our days into works of micro-redemption that express God's shalom. 2,000 years ago, something happened. Isaiah wrote about it. He predicted it 500 years prior. What was that? God's Christ came into the world. He lived shalom. Joy surrounded his existence. And then he looked at us and he said, marry me, let's change the world. 
That is a divine and supernatural thing. As I see it, that is the end of the struggle to survive, a way of life where we steamroll over one another out of fear and out of selfishness, where we live with anxiety and desperation and no joy. It's the end of that. It's the inauguration of a better way. I call it snuggling in order to thrive. No more struggle to survive. It's snuggling to thrive. I use my resources, my education, my connections, my networks, not just for self-advancement, for the advancement of my assets, but to help other people, to advance them. We help one another. We make joy. For joy, as Eugene Peterson once reminded, is not a requirement of following Christ. It is a consequence of it. Don't leave this invitation untried. Make joy.